0: Welcome to the Fan Engagement Pod from Fan Insights, bringing you insights straight from the experts. You can join the Fan Engagement Network at faninsights.co.uk and we'll let you know when new episodes come out. We're also on ACAST, Google, Apple, and all major podcasting platforms. The stuff is the feature. 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 We've already reached double figures, so welcome to episode 10 of the Fan Engagement Pod. In this episode, I chat with William Guyard, former Director of Communications and Public Affairs at UEFA, and now Senior Advisor at Public Affairs and PR agency Burson, Cone and Wharf. It's fair to say that William knows his stuff when it comes to football at the highest level, but his years were also spent with the grassroots helping UEFA to navigate important relationships with fans and their representatives Europe-wide. He is also now an advisor to both my old organisation, SD Europe, and to Football Against Racism in Europe. This is a look at fan engagement at a strategic level, the importance of listening, the important elements of governance required for a club to have proper relationships with their fans, and at times a bit of a tour around the subject from a historical perspective. It was a great conversation and one I hope you enjoyed too. Don't forget you can join the fan engagement network at faninsights.co dot uk forward slash network forward slash join you're a senior advisor working for um let me get this right um burson Pone and wolf Wolf. is that right yeah Yeah, bcw bcw yeah yeah. because for those bcw for those who don't know their public affairs no no that's right it used to be burson last year until last year um for those who aren't aware a lot of what happens in these industries, in in those set sectors, is there's lots of mergers, and that's the result of a recent merger. Um, William has had a long career in um, public affairs, public relations, um, and starting out with the European Commission. And the, one of the most sort of relevant experiences, William, for what we're talking about, is being director of communications and public affairs at UEFA. That would be the reason I know of you and I know you is because of my time at Supporters Direct and, and, and SD Europe, um, where you were someone quite important in the foundation of the work of Supporters Direct in Europe and, and you're now in fact an advisor to SD Europe as well as also to Football Against Racism in Europe FAIR, which Kick It Out is part of that network as well. So people can, can familiarise themselves with, I'm sure, with, um, with William's Biog on his LinkedIn page. But um, you're still involved in football. You still advise in football. Um, just tell me, you know, you started out in the European Commission, and there was nothing. There was nothing to suggest, um, uh, throughout your career that football was a place you were going to go. So why, just out of interest, why did you end up working for UEFA from 2005 to 2015? Because that was a change from. Um, the United Nations, the International Air Transport Association, Multinational Forces Observes and the European Commission?
1: Well, uh, I've always been a football fan. Um, I was always also a rugby player. So, so my my two favourite sports are uh, football and, and rugby. Uh, I support a team, uh, I've always done so. I mean, my first supporters card was when I was uh, seven years old. I just <laughs> I've kept it. Uh, so uh, football has always been uh, part of my life. Uh, but you know, I mean, you, uh, you end up working in, in, in many different uh, uh, areas. Uh, and then one day, someone calls you and, and tells you, uh, well, would you be interested in working for, for UEFA? Uh, do you like football? Uh, you know, it's it's the headhunter. And then I say, well, actually I do, yes. <laughs> so I, I'm sure a lot of fans dream uh, about having that kind of a phone call, but I got one of those in, in 2002. <laughs> and so I said, yes. And then uh, I ended up uh, working for UEFA. And certainly it was
0: uh, one of the most interesting uh, period in my career. So look, what, you know, some people might say, as you said, that it would be a dream job, but then there's another way of looking at it. And sometimes it felt like this for me working at the level of football I did, albeit very different from yours, was to some extent, it removed a lot of the glamour because, um, you know, the English phrase looking under the bonnet, you start to see what's actually in there. Is it, is it? Is it a little bit, yeah, I'm sure it's exciting and everything. And I, you know, getting to getting to do the things you got to do, um, we're obviously going to be exciting for a football fan and you might have to pinch yourself sometimes but is there also part of it which you feel a bit disappointed that actually it's not it is more like the wizard of oz as i say to people that you pull the curtain back and there's a little man sat on a chair pulling a a chair. there's lots of there's lots of noise but really it's very it's not as complex as people make it out to be and that's the disappointment <laughs> it's not well yeah um,
1: also um, in many ways uh, one gets disappointed because, uh, having worked in uh, uh, in other fields, uh, I met a lot of uh, uh, interesting, uh, committed people. Well, I did that also in uh, in football, but in some ways, uh, you also meet a lot of people who are there just because it's a good job. Uh, so. Uh, <laughs> From that point of view, uh, yes, uh, one could be a bit disappointed once you, uh, you, you lift up the, the bonnet or, or, or the hood, as the Americans say. <laughs> you know, I lived for, for a decade in the States, so <laughs> I tend to use a lot of American vocabulary. But uh, uh, yes, of course, uh, uh, I once was talking to uh, an Italian coach who had coached in, uh, in, uh, in, in Serie A for a, a number of years, a number of, of clubs, and he had a very good reputation. And uh, uh, I asked him, you know, uh, you're still watching a lot of football? And he looked at me and he said, no. <laughs> 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 so, uh, yes, mm-hmm. I think uh, once you look at anything under the bonnet, uh, you, you end up,
0: seeing things that maybe you don't like too much (laughs) so look that there was a little hint there so actually number one what's your what was the what was the team what was the club you grew up supporting
1: oh uh stade de reims which actually um uh is a club it's a provincial club uh, about 150 kilometers east of paris and uh in the champagne uh, champagne area and it, it played the first uh final of the what was called the european uh, club cup uh it played against real madrid in 1956 uh, and lost four to three in the final
0: all right ah quite a fine. it's played the
1: second one which is lost also to real madrid in 59.
0: Mm, okay. uh, it Just has a great so great
1: history but being from a from a medium-sized city um you know uh, in the new football i mean we, we are in uh, in the top division right now but you know every year
0: it's a struggle to stay in <laughs> so there was a little hint at something there you talked about being in the us for 10 years um you 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 we were ch- we were chatting off um um before we started recording and you mentioned um us sport and um the the, the notion of competitive balance um now number one it's always an interesting one because obviously US, sports is, U.S. sport is very ring-fenced, if we can put it that way. You know, they don't have a pyramid with up and down like we do in European football. No, no, sure,
1: sure. Um, well, we have a kind of a pyramid uh, uh, because we have minor leagues and, of course, you have the university system, hmm. uh, the NCAA. Uh, so there is a pyramid. There is a part.
0: Uh, I mean, it's distinct, though, oh, it? For individual players. Yeah, I mean, in terms of it's in terms of clubs, it's a much more different system because it's not a merit oh, yes. system in that sense. It's you have to be invited in. So I don't want to spend too much time exploring this because we want you know, I want to try and get on the more 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 extensively onto the subjects of fun engagement. Um, but that always strikes me that it's it's only a comparison you can draw so far because of the fact that it's ring fenced. So how do you? you know how do you see that applies you know this notion of competitive balance and that you see that reflected in american sport is it i mean sure you'll say yes but how easy is it to transpose something that operates in such a different environment into something like european sport european football which is so um as i say it's 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 it's, it's merit-driven, it's promotion, it's up and down, clubs rise and fall. Whereas in the US, the only, reason you tra- the only way you change is by moving a club around or the owners decide they're, they're, they'll permit someone else to come in. So how does, how does that work then? How do you... you know, well,
1: uh, you see, uh, uh, because of the loss of competitive balance that we've seen in Europe, there's only about five or at most six leagues uh, that are viable today. Most countries don't have a viable league. I mean, they have a league that loses an enormous amount of money and players every year to bigger leagues. Uh, There's no chance to ever getting uh, in the final stages of of the European Cups. And uh, uh, so uh, football has changed dramatically uh, over over the last uh, two decades. Uh, So in some ways, uh, uh, we don't have close leagues, but uh, it is as if we had them. Uh, I think it's an illusion today to think that uh, the virtuous pyramid is still in place, uh, unfortunately, uh, because uh, football has become so predictable, uh, less, less in England, and that's the merit of, of the Premier League, because at least it has kept some kind of a, a financial balance. Uh, because the money is distributed more fairly more evenly, i mean uh, uh, I think if ten years ago someone would tell me that I would actually praise the Premier League, I would have been surprised, but you know uh, com- compared to what we 've got on uh, on the continent uh, where some you know clubs are winning uh, their championship nine times in a row <laughs> um, England still. Uh, has more competitive balance than than anywhere else. Uh, although it, it is also eroding. I mean, there are five, six clubs that can really compete in England for. Uh, but in some countries, there's only one or two. Hmm. And uh, so that's dramatic. And something is going to have to give if we don't mean, you know, uh, if in a country so- someone wins the championship for 15 years in a row, uh, that championship is dead. Uh, so, we're going to have to do something about it. And, uh, and maybe the ring fencing, uh, the closed leagues, American style, may be a way to deal with that. I mean, personally, and, and I've said it in interviews recently, uh, I would rather see a European Super League with maybe uh, 22 clubs from the north and 22 clubs from the south uh, competing all year long and then. Uh, national leagues that, that would be, for the other clubs, much more competitive, much more open, uh, and in the end, uh, uh, more traditional in, in their approach. So, uh, and that, of course, would come with, uh, for, for the, uh, the ring-fenced uh, European League, uh, salary caps, um, uh, collective labor agreements, uh, um, and uh, luxury tax. Uh, or or some kind um,
0: of uh, maximum income, uh, like they have in the states. So 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 if we look at it, because a lot of people would just say, "Ah oh, well, you know, you just um, you're restricting the, the opportunity of a club to 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 be successful um, by creating all that kind of regulation." Um, I mean, and that is relevant to the experience of fans, because obviously the chances of winning something are affected. They are very directly affected by the way that a club is administered, by the way that a competition is administered. But lots of people will be seduced by the idea that they might be the next club that get taken over by whoever it is, who's got the money and can can launch them into the stratosphere. Um, Is that, you know, in the end... Is, are those issues of importance to, why, well, why are those issues of importance to fans in the end? Because, you know, that, that, that a fan goes to a game, it, you know, it's quite difficult to think geopolitics <clears throat> when all you're interested in is watching your club from three o'clock in well from, you know, for two hours a week. It's quite difficult to persuade people that that might be an issue that's that's important that's important to them, uh, um, or, you know. And through the work, I mean, you continue to advise SD Europe, and, and I'm presuming that some of the issues that come up will relate to that that sort of competitive balance issue. Is it is it is it very difficult to translate that issue into something that matters to fans, um, you know, and matters to people going to matches and, and caring about their clubs and you know whatever state of ownership or whatever level they're at well uh,
1: uh, I am a fan of a medium sized club in uh, in France i have absolutely no illusion that my club will ever win the french league uh, the way football is organized today let alone win the european uh, champions league uh no chance because uh, uh we have uh today uh closed leagues in many ways i mean the uh, uh, the champions league is a closed league look at the list of the teams that have won it in the past 20 years uh it's very clear Um, so uh, it, it it has everything but the name uh so my my club is happy to stay uh uh, in the top division, sometimes goes to, to the second, once went to the third. Uh, but when it gets to the first, uh, its its main goal is not it's not to win that league, it's to stay in the first, just because we don't have a sugar daddy. Mm. We have a local entrepreneur who has invested some of his money uh, into the club, and that's it. And a few sponsors. Uh, and we just can't compete with... with uh, Clubs with uh, 500 million uh, uh, budget, hmm. and we will never be able to do to do so.
0: Not in the system that exists. there well, but no, no, no. But
1: even even in another system, just because uh, uh, you know, it's a club that comes from a medium-sized town of about 150,000, and uh, and unless there is, a, you see, the idea, the illusion that the sugar daddy is is, is going to do it. The problem is that there are a number of sugar daddies. with other clubs Uh, so is it is it really exciting for anyone to uh, to just basically buy buy the league I mean uh, these clubs are buying the title I mean I look at Paris Saint-Germain in France uh, or Juventus in Italy uh, you know they completely uh, dominate uh, the national scene Uh, they have Paris Saint-Germain has has about 20 times more money than than the the least endowed uh, club in the league. Um, You know, uh, there's a famous French play from uh, Shakespearean times that says, uh, by winning without danger, uh, you triumph without glory. I mean, you know, when I see uh, Paris Saint-Germain winning 5-0 against another team, uh, do I want to applaud? No, I want to cry. I mean, this is ridiculous. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, makes absolutely no sense and it's not worth watching.
0: So, um, moving on to something slightly different. Well, you know, it's related, obviously. But um, what I'm int- something I'm interested in, you spent 10 years working for UEFA in the senior position. Uh, 15, and- yeah. <laughs> 15 years, sorry. <laughs> yes. Um, um for 15 years working for UA for a senior position and um a lot of your well certainly for 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 for, for part of that um, you had a great interest in the role of fans and where they the position supporters took in the game and that kind of thing something i'm interested in is how how much when you're trying to build you know um, To some extent, well, you're trying to build relationships as an organisation like UEFA. Obviously, it's difficult because you've got national associations, you've got clubs, and then you've got this new uh, concept of organised fans, which has become, which was really only something that emerged out of out out of Supporters Direct. Um, Although there were things going on in individual countries that created something that was much more whole. I don't think people quite realise the effect that Brian Lomax had sometimes on on football more generally and the concept of unity amongst fans on certain issues. And I think it's a really important thing actually. And the reason that I was sort of trying to get onto it is, is how much of a, you know, in some industries and some sectors and in some countries, um, there's a tradition of that type of stakeholder, that person, it might be the employee, it might be the employee, um, like it can be in, in the UK, that they're often seen as opposition. That, that if you're not with the people running the, the institution, the company, the organisation, in this case football, then people won't see you so much as a stakeholder. They'll see you as... as op- it, they'll see it through oppositional eyes. And I think a lot of fans see see things in football through, through oppositional eyes, and they don't necessarily see that, say, someone like yourself at the time was, in many senses, an ally. Um, and although you had to work for an organisation, part of your responsibility was to try to, to build, to be, to, to sometimes be that bridge between fans and UEFA more generally. Is it, am I am I getting that wrong, or do you think? That's, no, 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 you're not getting it wrong. And actually, to, uh, uh, I remember uh,
1: writing a speech for for the then uh, uh, president of UEFA, Lennart Johansson. This must have been like two thousand three, and. Uh, I wrote a speech on on the role of fans, um, in which he said that uh, UEFA doesn't have uh, the power to change the ownership patterns um, in individual national leagues. But if it did, it would prefer uh, the the socio model from Spain, in which uh, clubs, Uh, can be owned by uh, fans, uh, like a cooperative. Uh, uh, I wrote it and he said it, and this was very much the philosophy that we had at that time. And I think uh, it's still there today uh, uh, at UEFA. If we had the choice, we would very much prefer uh, fan-owned clubs to clubs owned by billionaires or uh, oil states. So uh, now uh, it hasn't happened, although uh, in a number of countries you have a fan ownership or you have local ownership, like in Germany with the uh, 50 plus 1 rule or in Sweden. Uh, so uh, it seems to be the, the virtuous model, the model that involves fans who are not customers. I mean, uh, clubs shouldn't have a customer relations department. Uh, they should have a fan engagement department. And uh, both with Supporters Direct, also with FSE uh, at the time, we tried to introduce uh, introduce some rules, in particular in UEFA uh, in licensing, that would involve uh, fans a lot more in managing the clubs, uh, even for the clubs that are not fan-owned. Um, the clubs have resisted that, especially the big clubs, uh, although some of them are fan-owned like uh, or, or locally-owned, like uh, Bayern Munich or uh, Barcelona or Real Madrid. Um, but I, I still do believe that uh, this is the, the virtuous model. This is the, the model that would guarantee competitive balance, but also um, it would also guarantee social development. Because because clubs are part of, of a community. Uh, what I don't like about the US system uh, is actually when so, uh, some owner says, you know, I want to move 6,000 miles away to Hawaii uh, because I like the weather there better, and he moves the club there. That, that's wrong. That's, you know, it's a little bit like the story of uh, uh, Wimbledon and Milton Keynes. Uh, I, I think it's wrong, or, or Murcia and Granada in Spain. It, it's really wrong. Uh, clubs should stay where they have roots, where they have fans, and where they actually do good for those communities. So, uh, from that point of view, I completely adhere to uh, uh, the uh, supporters' direct uh, uh, philosophy. And it was always my philosophy. Um, clubs should have local roots, and they should be involved in the life of the community. And, of course, the best way to do that is to uh, uh, enhance fan
0: involvement in the management of a club. Okay William the, the 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 bit that's interesting there is all all of that is very true I don't, and I don't I think the language that gets used by english football these days and I mean across you know premier league all the way down I I, I think I think I do agree that um that I think there's probably sometimes excessive cynicism about, um, about the Premier League. And even there, there's a lot of good going on. Um, a lot of, there's a lot of good going on the part of clubs and some of the relationships they have with fans and organised fans and individual fans. The bit that um, I suppose is interesting is that, I, in English football at least, um, is that to some extent I always feel that we're in denial to some to some extent, that we're in denial. Actually, we're still trying to marry this older uh, model where the local worthy businessman, the local owner, would be would be the owner, and they would be, um, you know, they des- they they wanted things to be, you know, it it the club mattered to them because they were local people, and, and 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 they they owned the factory, the hotel, or whatever it was, and they also owned the football club, and they cared about it because of that. But we've forgotten that that era has gone but the club still remains something that's very rooted that we employ a lot of the language of community and we talk a lot about those things are and in english football we have the the, the charitable trust that clubs um you know use to, to deliver a lot of that work we have clubs with good good relationships with their fans i mean some some top flight clubs Leicester City and Everton, for example, have good relationships, and they think a lot about what their fans want. They work a lot with fans, and yet there still seems to be this dynamic which is oppositional. Again, on and that it's seen as you are there, we are here, um, and, uh, and I I think it's unnecessary. Which is part of the reason Fan Insights was created, and part of the reason I try to do what I do when I try to, and I talk to people like you. So there's still this weird resistance to it. And is it is it just you know is this the slow glacial pace of change that you get in something like football, which is such an old institution and it's such an old football itself is old English football itself. You know, we can reach back to the 1880s to find it's, it's creation as a professional sport. Is it just a, is it, you know, are we destined to be like that? Or can you see that actually we've gone through quite a lot of change, you know, in, in 20 years of supporter, you know the creation supporters direct and all those kinds of things and people embracing these slightly more open versions of football is this just you know do, do we not look back and realize how much things have changed is that a problem do you think is that just how you I mean I think that sometimes perhaps is just how human beings are isn't it Well,
1: I mean happening. there is a, a rigidity in human relations <laughs> I mean, this is obvious um, there's also something uh, uh, That goes slightly deeper. Uh, The idea, it comes from uh, the uh, employee-owner relationship, which uh, uh, within the tradition of trade unionism and and the social struggles of the 19th and 20th century uh, has been uh, rather adversarial, uh, and that's true everywhere. it's difficult to go to a model in which uh, there would be some cooperation without, of course, eliciting the idea that this could be a betrayal of, uh, uh, of the workers' interest or of the fans' interest. But here, uh, the German model is interesting because uh, at the wider uh, economic and social level, there is the so-called Mitbestimmung, the, the co-management cooperative management if you want which involves uh, employees in the management of the company they work in um and of course that spreads into into football through the 50 plus one rule that you know of local ownership um i i believe it would be a great progress if in all uh, boards in all football club boards uh, all over europe you would have uh, fan representatives uh because uh, one would get away from this idea that, that fans are just customers that buy you know a product uh it's like going to, to watch a movie and then you go home no fans are much more emotionally involved than just uh spectators watching a movie I mean this is something you know uh um, talking to friends of mine uh during the week we we are thinking about the game next Sunday, but we are still thinking about the game of last Saturday. And uh, uh, during the whole week, there is this tension, these emotions that we have. So um, that has to be recognized. Uh, a few years ago, um, we tried to make a proposal. We were discussing uh, between UEFA, fans, uh, leagues, and clubs. And, and, and I was I was as UEFA, the moderator, trying to to get something going there. The leagues stopped it. Um, And I think it was a mistake. It was a mistake because uh, I think fan involvement would bring a tremendous uh, amount of uh, uh, good uh, to boards that tend to be very... uh, uh, top down uh, in the decision making process um, having more of the uh, grounding in the local community through fans representatives in boards um, clubs would find it, would find it a lot easier i think the league also as a result to deal with uh, its fans and to deal with the community and also to give a different impression of what they are doing um, to the powers that be, including uh, local and national governments. So uh, football has a social role to play. And I think by having fans in in football club boards, uh, it would be a lot more concrete than it is today, um, because fans matter. Uh, I I, I think uh, right now, and it's linked to what happened during this pandemic. Um, there is a lot of movement at the grassroots of people saying, look, uh, yes, we might be different, because we are, we are all different. I mean, uh, not, our societies are not monolithic. I mean, there's a lot of components. And you mentioned uh, um, ethnic minorities, uh, men and women, uh, young people, older people um uh, we all have different views different interests um so uh it's obvious the football club being being a mirror uh, of society has to deal with the same kind of diverse opinion but diversity is also uh, richness uh the more diverse people are the more interesting the ideas they express uh otherwise you know if you're just listening uh to your brother all the time or your sister, um, you don't get too many new ideas. Uh, you need to go to the different neighborhood with different tradition and so on. So uh, I think that's being acknowledged almost worldwide. Right now, there's a lot of resistance, uh, of course. But it is difficult to do away with it uh, without some, some deep-rooted uh, uh, reforms. And I think football is facing the same, the same problem. Um, uh, you know, uh, we have had uh, so many games uh, over the past couple of months uh, without fans. Uh, and you know, for some owners, uh, I, I quoted recently in an interview the fact that uh, uh, once I was sitting, it was a, 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 a dinner before a Champions League final. and. Uh, uh, they were, uh, the owners of, uh, of Milan were there, um, and uh, uh, at that time, uh, uh, the CEO of Milan was was uh, telling us that, uh, he suggested to the owner of the time, who uh, was Berlusconi, uh, that, that perhaps we could do away with fans, actually that fans uh, are a pain in the neck, you know, there's violence, uh, um, they, uh, they are unruly, uh, uh, they light up flares, and, and you know uh, it's a big problem. We, we could have virtual fans, he said, just like in "Gladiator," you know, the, the movie. Um, and, and this would be just as good because the people watching it on TV wouldn't see the difference. And we wouldn't have to deal with all these ultras. So the, the, the temptation exists. Um, uh, uh, with owners, to, to do away with fans. But at the same time, uh, people understand, and we've seen it in the last two months, that, that the game without fans uh, is really not the same. And the club without fans, I mean, a club with just customers, uh, certainly um, wouldn't look at all like what we know football clubs are like. Uh, they would just uh, start to figure out, oh, uh, um, you know, uh, let's do a marketing research. Uh, Shall we change our colors? Uh, uh, The league would say, maybe we should play with 15 players or or, uh, put a couple women in defense, uh, in the men's, uh, you know. Uh, So football has roots and it has a long tradition. Uh, It goes back to the early 19th century in many ways and uh, at the time of the the huge social conflicts of the of the 19th century uh, in a number of countries uh, football was seen as embedding the idea of rebellion but at the same time uh, a number of industrialists at that time decided that creating a football club would be a nice distraction for their workers that would keep them away from uh, from uh, violent strikes and uh, the idea of taking over. So there's plenty of contradiction in all that. And we have to live with that. I mean, you know, uh, uh, history is full of contradictions. And our current experience is the product of, of that kind of contradictions.